Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Previously on Heading for Home, a warrior was felled. The field was festooned and fans ran wild. Herb Score pled for sanity. The Indians showed some pluck and the Rangers were bombed out of their bullpen. Wilcox went into the windup and with the bases loaded and two outs in the top of the seventh, he let it fly. Grieve whiffed mightily for strike one. Wilcox took a quick walk around the mound. The distracted, drunken, destructive crowd dialed into the drama of the moment, and an expectant silence filled the air. Wilcox, working from the windup with the bases loaded, spun a curveball low and outside for a ball. Wilcox bent forward to take the sign from Duncan, then stood tall and began his windup. A fastball whizzed toward the inside corner of the plate. Grieve met the ball squarely with a resounding crack and sent it arcing into the air toward center field. Long-legged George Hendrick turned and got on his horse. Back, back, back. Hendrick galloped toward the center field fence. As he hit the warning track, Hendrick leaped and fully extended his arm. The ball hissed over his shoulder and nestled neatly into the webbing of his glove for the third out. Hendrick held up his prize for all to see, a huge smile on his face. Wilcox waved his approval and appreciation from the mound. The crowd exhaled audibly, then broke into thunderous applause, with the score still 5-3 to three in favor of the Rangers. It was time for the seventh-inning stretch, the folksy normality of which felt joltingly out of place in this aggressively abnormal Tuesday night at the ballpark. With the explosions and streakers and projectiles and fights and drunken idiots running around, it was time for the sane and sober to get the hell out of Dodge. Families, clinging couples, and older people all began the process of leaving the stadium to the drunk and disorderly, and the stairways to the concourse clogged up quickly. The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium, some doing somersaults and cartwheels, some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, poked and shooed at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash. You are invited to stand, stretch your legs, and sing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Take me out to the ball game. 
It felt like street gangs pausing to sing, this land is your land, in the middle of a turf war. Hoping to build on their momentum, the Indians came to bat in the bottom of the seventh against reliever Steve Foucault, who had given up a scoring single to George Hendrick in the bottom of the sixth, bringing the tribe within two runs at 5-3. to three. Billy Martin stood atop the dugout steps, screaming taunts and curses back at fans who, in an ongoing border war, climbed onto the dugout roof and tossed beer and objects down onto the Rangers players and personnel below before retreating back into the stands. A string of lit firecrackers landed right at Martin's feet. With the fuse fizzing angrily, Martin nonchalantly bent down, scooped it up, and tossed it back toward the stands in one fluid motion, like the Major League second baseman he had once been. The crackers went off in midair above the dugout roof, sending the enemy scrambling for cover. Billy Martin smiled a satisfied little smile. In rapid succession, Foucault struck out Dave Duncan, Frank Duffy, and John Lowenstein to end the bottom of the seventh with a thud with the score still Rangers 5 and Indians 3. Milt Wilcox, who had come in the game to get the critical last out of the seventh inning for the Indians, stayed in the game to pitch the eighth. Now hitting for the Rangers. Batting sixth and playing third base, Larry Brown. Journeyman infielder Larry Brown came to the plate batting a paltry 143 and seemed no match for Wilcox. But that's why they play the game. Brown laced a single to left as Wilcox shook his head. Next up was dangerous Toby Hera, who struck out swinging for the first out of the eighth. Up next for the Rangers was Mike Hargrove, who would go on to win the AL Rookie of the Year award in 74 and eventually become the Indians manager in the 90s. Hargrove, who fiddled around so much between pitches that he earned the nickname the Human Rain Delay, took ball four from a visibly frustrated Milt Wilcox putting him on first and moving Larry Brown to second with one out in the top of the eighth. Batting ninth for the Rangers. Playing catcher, Jim Sunberg. Wilcox focused his attention and set his jaw on getting out of the jam. Sunberg didn't bite on a borderline pitch that home plate umpire Larry McCoy called a strike. Wilcox took the sign from Duncan and delivered a curve that buckled Sunberg's knees before bending over the inside corner for strike two. Looking confident, Wilcox tossed a low seed on the outside corner that Sunberg chipped toward Brohammer at second. The hammer plucked it cleanly, flipped to shortstop Duffy covering second, who turned and made the relay throw to Blanco at first for an inning-ending double play. Announcer Kiefer sighed audibly and leaned into his mic. Attention, guests. All concession stands have run out of beer. Boots! Eat shit! You suck! You won't get one! You're thirsty! Whatever the beer! However, beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield fence. Yay! It was as if a huge electromagnet had been suddenly turned on, inexorably drawing hundreds of fans toward the beer trucks parked beyond the home run fence. The stadium was also home to Brown's football, so there was open turf between the outfield fence and the stands. The trucks were nestled there, with kegs on the inside and taps on the outside like beer teats. 
The Indians games were broadcast on WWWE 1100 AM, the 50,000-watt powerhouse that sports talk legend Pete Franklin claimed could be heard in 38 states and half of Canada. The announcers were the aforementioned Herb Score and another local legend, Joe Tate. Tate called the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball games from the team's inception in 1970 through the 2010-11 season. And in 2010, he won the Basketball Hall of Fame Kurt Gowdy Media Award. He was also the Indians announcer on radio and later TV from 1973 until 1987. Steve Foucault is still out there for the Rangers. He struck out the side against the Indians in the seventh, so Billy Martin sent him out there for the eighth. Besides that, no one can warm up in the Rangers' bullpen. Brohammer slammed a ground rule double and scored against Fergie Jenkins in the sixth. But this time, he taps a grounder weakly to Hargrove at first for the first out of the inning. After Leron Lee hit a single up the middle, Indians right fielder Charlie Spikes yanked a grounder to third that Larry Brown turned into a 5-4-3 double play to end the bottom of the eighth. The stadium had mostly emptied out, except for a dense throng of fans ringing the fences all the way around the field. With so many participants so close to the field... The trajectory of thrown projectiles now carried them deeper onto the field to play, so it took the grounds crew even longer to tidy things up between innings. The sky was a voluptuous purple under a mystical full moon. The scoreboard, with a huge Marlboro sign behind center field, proclaimed that the score was still 5-3 in favor of the Rangers, heading into the ninth inning. While cigarette advertising was banned on TV and radio in the U.S. in 1971, it wasn't until 1998 that it was banned at sporting events and concerts. Over the radio, Herb Score's reassuring voice said, We're headed into the ninth inning with the Rangers leading the Indians 5-3. This sure has been a wild one, and the game's been pretty lively too. Indians manager Ken Aspermani is leaving Wilcox in the game to pitch the ninth. He'll face the top of the lineup for the Rangers, Tovar, Randall, and Johnson. Tovar lifted a fly ball deep to Leron Lee and left, who settled under it for the out. Next up was Lenny Randall, who had started all this mess at the game in Texas five days before. But for all his swagger, Randall hadn't done much in tonight's game, going 0 for 3 with a walk. Wilcox let fly an inside fastball that Randall turned on and sent deep, deep, deep into left before Lee chased it down near the warning track for out number two. Batting next was the always dangerous Alex Johnson, who was 0 for 4 in the game. In fact, the Rangers had a lot of 0 in the lineup. It was Tom Grieve and Toby Hera who had done most of the damage with five hits and four RBI between them. Wilcox delivered a sweeping curve to the inside corner that Johnson grounded to Frank Duffy at short, who gloved it cleanly and made a strong throw to first for the third out. Up next, the bottom of the ninth inning, the last chance for the Indians to pull this one out and restore justice to the world. Billy Martin left Steve Foucault, who had already pitched two and a third innings of scoreless relief, in the game to try to close it out for the visitors. Foucault had been doing great work for the Rangers, giving up only nine runs in 20 appearances for a tidy ERA of 1.54 on the season. Martin made some defensive changes, moving Cesar Tovar from center to left, replacing Alex Johnson, and placing speedy Joe Levito in center for Tovar. 
Oscar Gamble bounced up to the plate with his huge afro fighting his batting helmet for supremacy to begin the bottom of the ninth inning for the Indians. Gamble lashed a sizzling grounder to Hera at short, who gobbled it up and tossed over to Hargrove at first for the out. The crowd groaned and burped in rapid succession, sending disappointed and gassy sound waves bounding across Lake Erie on their way to Canada. A dozen or so determined but wobbly revelers dropped onto the field from various points of entry, performed a rather trite selection of look-at-me movements, then hopped back into the stands. Indian center fielder George Hendrick advanced up to the dish. Hendrick had made the great catch in center to save Wilcox in the top of the sixth and collected the RBI infield single to tighten the score at 5-3 in the bottom of the sixth. Neither team had scored since. Hendrick jumped on a Foucault fastball and scorched a double to left. Finally, finally, finally! Suck on that, Billy! Beat them to a pulp, man! Several scofflaws oozed onto the field from around the stadium, especially the right field corner where access was easiest. Rangers right fielder Jeff Burrows looked over his left shoulder and warily moved a few steps closer toward center. The trespassers scurried back into the stands. Pinch hitting for Ozzy Blanco and batting seventh, Ed Crosby. Crosby was yet another bats left, throws right infielder who had just come to the Indians in a June 1st trade with the Cardinals. This was his first at bat for the tribe. Talk about being dumped into the fire. On a 2-2 count with the crowd holding its breath, Crosby spanked a clean single into right field past the outstretched glove of Lenny Randall, scoring George Hendrick from second. The Tribe was back in the game, only one run away from tying it up. Beyond the outfield fence, swarms of drunks sucked on fumes and foam directly from the taps on the Stroh's beer trucks, long since abandoned by their handlers who weren't getting paid for combat duty. Torres was a switch hitter who could bat left against Foucault. He didn't strike out much, and he had a little bit of speed, as opposed to Duncan, who did strike out a lot and was not a speed demon. A double play and the game would be over. Aspermani had to go with the percentages. Thundering beneath the din of the crowd was the steady boom, boom, boom of John Adams' bass drum from the bleachers. The Indians were on the warpath, on the verge of a momentous comeback against Billy Martin and the Rangers. The crowd ached for revenge, ached to be winners, ached for something to go right for once. Next time on Heading for Home, pinch hitters produce... Fans fester and foam, a fateful confrontation in right field, and all hell breaks loose. Heading for Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson. Sound design and original music by Richard Ingraham. Performed by Eric Olson, Buck McWilliams, Alex Olson, Mars Fargo, Tom Fulton, Nathan Welsh, Marty O'Sullivan, Don Olson, Donna Westfall, Brian Westfall, and Richard Ingraham.
Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a Tencent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. There was aggression in the air before the game even started. She shrieked and disappeared beneath him. With surprising agility, her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer The Indians got behind early, and the mood was explosive. Designated hitter Grieve settled in the batter's box and promptly set a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout. A streaker took to the base paths. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Though chippy, the crowd was also creative and expressive. There was a family of mooners. A pair of fans bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over, and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers, rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double moon salute. As the tribe fell into a five-to-one hole and the alcohol took hold, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer pled for sanity. Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians players and management request that you stop throwing things and stop running onto the field. Thank you for your cooperation. The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium, some doing somersaults and cartwheels, some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, poked and shooed at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash. Act! The beer ran out! Attention guests! All concession stands have run out of beer. Just kidding. However, beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield fence. Despite the drunken streakers' destruction and explosions, the Indians were on the verge of a huge comeback. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat and sent a squipper toward Larry Brown at third, who charged and grabbed it cleanly, but had no place to go with the throw. Crosby dashed to third, Torres to second, and young Ashby stood on first with what the young man moved like a spy in a cartoon, crouching low, stepping high, tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burrow. The dam burst. Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy. I've been in this business for over 20 years and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this. I haven't either. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request 
that you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you. Don't miss Heading for Home, season one of Freakish History, the bizarre true tale of the 10-cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974.